This is Kenny. And this is Mark. And this is a very special uh, episode of All I Want to Do is Talk About Madonna. A, well, you know, Kenny, yeah. we, we had so many great experiences that we talked about in London. And yeah. I think one of the best ones, and we mentioned it on our live episode, was um, getting to spend time with Brian Mullen and the, the company of Playwell Productions for their show, Live to Tell, a proposal for the Madonna Jukebox musical. Yes. And one of the things that we got to do that was a real treat was on uh, one of the nights while we were there, we did a talk back after the show, which we recorded and are going to share with you today. And this is in advance of Brian's show, uh, which is returning to London for an additional two weeks of performances, this time at the Camden People's Theatre. Um, it's going to be running from Tuesday, April 4th to Saturday, April 15th at 7 p.m. Um, tickets are on sale now. We'll be including it with the notes for the show and probably on our social media channels. Um, and if you're in England, um, I'm obsessed right now, Kenny, with the, the seaside town of Margate. So everyone uh-huh. take the train from Margate into <laughs> London to see this show or um, from Surrey or from Brighton, my favorite beachside town or Edinburgh or... I'm trying to think of all the places that... Um, Why are you obsessed with Margate? I just... Well, you know, when I lived in England in 1997, I uh, was... Uh, Maggie Smith and Eileen Atkins were doing a revival of The Delicate Balance. Remember that big revival with Elaine Stritch? That of course. It happened? So that happened, and then they did it in London, the same kind of production, uh, the next year. And they toured all over the provinces before they came into the West End for the run and Maggie Smith was Claire, Eileen Atkins was Agnes. I can't believe I saw this and I went and I went to like four cities to see it before I came to London. So I went to these tiny little towns that have these gorgeous theaters and then they came into London and this feels like Brian Brian and, and Dan have been like pouring the provinces and now they're coming back to Camden. So I know how easy it is to get from these little seaside shanty towns into London and they should be going to see Brian's show in Camden, directed by Deirdre McLaughlin, co-starring Dan De Lamont. It's wonderful. Uh, and I loved our conversation with them, Kenny. I think it's a beautiful conversation and um, I'm, I'm thrilled that we were able to capture it. And I just want to give a special shout out thanks to Adam Smith, who did all the recording and um, the initial editing mixing on this. So without further ado, here is our talk back um, for Live to Tell, a proposal for the Madonna Jukebox musical. Enjoy. Right. Hello, my name is Kenny. And this is Mark. And we together have a podcast called All I Want to Do is Talk About Madonna. And we, we were invited here tonight by Brian um, as uh, we had met him through the podcast a few years ago. And um, when he said he was going to do the show, uh, he said, do you all want to come out and do some stuff? And we we're like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're just so thrilled to be here and um, really honored. Um, the show was fantastic. Let's give these guys yes. another round of applause. Yeah. 
And, and just to uh, reiterate who everybody is, this is Brian Mullen, who wrote and, and stars in the play, Dan De Lamont, who is in the play, and Deidre McLaughlin, who is the director of the play. So they are our panelists this evening. So congratulations, everybody. It's a great show. And uh, how do you feel about it, Kenny? How, did, how were you up there tonight? How was I up about there? About the play. Oh. We had to talk about the play. Well, we saw we saw it a couple nights ago. Yeah. And um, I, I, I was saying to you just before we started that it was really a rush to see because it was so beautiful and intense and there was so much information. Yeah. But tonight I really got to sit back and like appreciate the show at a different level and really feel all the nuance of it. So I was really emotionally moved tonight more so than on Wednesday night. How are you feeling? I, I was I, I found it much sexier than I remembered it on on Wednesday. I found it a sexy play. Really? Um, and um, I also found it um, uh, so much funnier. Oh and, yeah. And um, you know, it's a, it, when you try and talk about this play to people, you, it's a Madonna musical, but it's not really a Madonna musical. It's not really about Madonna, but it's about you know eight, living with HIV and survival. And people are like, oh. but this is so much funnier than that, and 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 there's such a joy to it ultimately. And I think that that's what really struck me tonight with it was how how much I wanted to get out of my seat and like join Brian up there to oh, dance. Yeah. I saw somebody up there also waving their arms in jo in ecstasy yes. during the um during the the build of of Ray of Light at the Confessions tour from 2006. So like <laughs> I, 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 that was my my kind of initial like oh I want to just go out there and kick the world. Agreed. <laughs> I felt the same. I mean, I think there's so much joy in the play, like especially like during the cherish part, yeah. where I couldn't help but sing along. Um, I just adore that, and I felt like the ending too just left us in this place, this warmth between the two of you, this sense of like ripping off character, becoming your true selves, and really mm -hmm. checking in with each other. Like, how are we? How are we doing? And are we alive? We are alive, and we've survived. Not only that, but we're thriving, which I think is really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> great. And, and I think finally that that sense of community that is around Brian and around so many uh, queer people, um, you know, it, it, the fact somebody asks you how you are. So much of our world right now is about chaos and noise and people have stopped checking in with each other. And I think the fact that he had somebody come and give him some water and um, how are you? How, you know, that, that's such a simple thing and it means so much to so many people when somebody asks them that without a, how are you? Can you help me move? <laughs> or how are you? Can I buy some groceries or, you know? Yeah, I mean, just because the piece itself is, is actually very internal. Yeah. And so to find community at the end, I think is a really beautiful gesture. Mm. Yeah. So we have some questions yeah. for our panelists. Um, and I get, I'm going to take the first one. Um, Brian, and, and then I would love Deirdre and, and Dan to start. Why Madonna? Um, you know, we, we, we are very well versed in the Madonna. But, um, Brian, you know, Brian, you've self-confessed that you're not a huge, huge fan. So what was it about? I know. I, we've, we, we're dealing with it. We're dealing with it. But, like, like, was the show percolating and then Madonna came into it? Like, how did, how did she connect with your very personal story? Yeah, so... Uh, it's a complicated answer, which I will try to condense to like the greatest highlights because otherwise we'd be here a long time. But 
The truth of the matter is that when I started first writing, the first draft was probably in the end of 2018. And at that point, believe it or not, I wouldn't I would describe myself as a Madonna appreciator, but I was definitely not on the level. Like, I couldn't have told you that Live to Tell was on True Blue, if that makes it, you know... Uh, it is on True Blue. No, it is. Okay, good. See, uh, you were looking at me it's the song. <laughs> like I'd made a faux pas. No. But I wouldn't have known that. And the thing is, um, I knew I wasn't a fan because as it happened, uh, you know, to give credit where credit is due, my two previous uh, long-term partners both knew way more about Madonna than I did. But my um, connection with Madonna goes way back. It's like a Freudian scene, really, okay? So in 1990, a little movie called Dick Tracy came out where uh, Madonna, as people will know, played Breathless Mahoney. And this was like a pivotal transition in my life because I'd been very into Disney and I was very excited for Dick Tracy, so much so that I actually drew my own Monopoly-style board game for my family to play that had all the Dick Tracy villains like that I had drawn. This is a true story. And, and so that shows you like the level of like non-sexuality that I was at at that point. And then here was Madonna. And I think like, I'm breathless. This, uh, music, music from, from and inspired, inspired by, by the, the film, film Dick, Dick Tracy yeah. was was this gateway. And of course, as I say in the show, Vogue is on there, and it was like too much information for me to deal with as a kid because I was like a, attracted to it, but disturbed. And there was like my Catholicism and all this stuff. And of course, the years that followed, the years of my adolescence, were the erotica era and the sex book. And I think I had this sense that she was doing something strong and powerful in the culture, but also something that I was a bit afraid of, if that makes sense. And so in a way, I feel like Madonna was undetectable in my life, kind of like hovering for um, a couple of decades. And the inspiration for the show, I think, really came um, if we're talking about reinvention, like from a, a sense of frustration that I had from having had some plays made and put on where I was primarily the writer. And I think the initial impetus was really a sense of if I make something where I'm the central act, you know, agent of the thing, I can make it happen. I don't need to send my play off to literary agents and gatekeepers and et cetera, et cetera. And it seemed like, oh, it would be a fun, like, hooky idea to turn it into a sort of gay thing where I'm, you know, I have this interesting relationship with Madonna. Anyway, the idea formed, and the first draft kind of, like, flowed out of me. I mean, I think Dan and Deirdre both read that first draft, and it was very, very different. There, a lot of the stuff um, in the current draft was in there, but there was a lot of other stuff that didn't make a lot of sense um, in terms of, we would sort of enact more of the show within a show. Mm -hmm. um, and very quickly, I knew that there needed to be another performer and I needed to figure out who that was. Um, but as I was writing it, I think almost without my knowing it, um, there was a central incident that kind of came out in the script, which was this moment when I uh, was offered to change my HIV. At, at that point, I'd been living with HIV for about six or seven years, I can't remember exactly. Um, and I, my, my doctor had said, well, you seem to be experiencing side effects. Do you want to change? And I waited like a full year to make that decision. And that just kind of came out in that sort of vomit draft of the play. And I think over time, that question of why Brian chooses not to do that and has to like 
process what it means to do that change really became the central question of the play. And so very quickly, um, I knew I had to get an actor. Uh, literally, Dan slid down a banister on the South Bank into my lap. It was like a, a meet cute in a, in a comedy. And I was like, Dan. I, we'd met like once before, and I, and, but I'd seen you do stand-up comedy where you were constantly kind of doing funny voices. And I was like, well, he can do funny voices. He could do this. And then Deirdre, I think, was so crucial in the early part of the process because that draft that had all this stuff that I think probably was extraneous and didn't work, Deirdre was really pushing me dramaturgically to like ex to both delve deeper into the core of the issues that were about me, but also to allow the play to be stranger and queerer and kind of go on the crazy journey that it does. But that was literally four years ago. So it's been a four year process. I would also add um, that over the four year process, I've watched Brian become a bigger Madonna fan. Yeah. That, that has been part, because when we first met, yeah, <laughs> Brian and I met uh, at an arts council grant writing workshop where a mutual friend put us in touch with each other. And I think they said, Deirdre is a bigger Madonna fan than you because I am. <laughs> or at least at that point I was and I had used Madonna music in multiple projects. And that's why they said you two should talk. And we started laughing and having a really good time together and clicked because we're both Americans who'd been living in the UK for a while. And that's a very unique and unusual experience. And um, and then over the course of working on the script together, it, it, I do think you should definitely be credited with the fact that you dove into that music and you wanted to make sure you understood it, that you really cared about it. It's so well woven into the text. And while you maybe didn't start a fan, you certainly, certainly are now, or you certainly have dramaturgical care um, given to it. And that's very much in the work. Yeah. Dan, when did you discover Madonna and how does she meet, what does she mean in your life? <laughs> um, first of all, I'm the only Brit up here, so I'm really aware of like what colonization must feel like now. So I can only, I can only apologize for the legacy of empire. I just want to make that, put that on the record. Um, what was the question? Oh, we're, yeah, not, we're not doing so well over there. So. Um, I was a bit of a, a James Bond nerd when I was growing up. And in 2002, I was 11. And that was the final Pierce Brosnan uh, Bond film, which is, of course, Die Another Day. Uh, and I know you did a, a podcast on, on Die Another Day uh, very recently. But um, as, so, as you know, uh, Madonna plays Verity, the fencing instructor. And... <laughs> Uh, this was just amazing, you know, right? So, I mean, I went to see that film with mum because it was a Bond film, Pierce Brosnan's last outing, as I just said. Um, and there's and there's Madonna uh, as Verity, the fencing instructor, but also singing a really amazing Bond theme. Die Another Day is a really underrated Bond theme. It's one of my favourite, and also one of my favourite Madonna songs as well. Uh, and so that was my gateway, I think, into Madonna, which then allowed me to delve into her past um, but, but that was the starting point, Die Another Day. I want to add something that Dan said to me, because um, I had written the script, and literally I think no one had read it. And Dan slid down the banister, and I said, can we meet for a coffee? I've got this project. And I showed him this crazy draft, 
and you read it, and you went away and thought about it. We met a second time, and you said to me, I really started to ask myself, why is Madonna a gay icon? Because, do you remember this? Yes. You were like, she's not Judy Garland, she's not Edith Piaf. You named about five or six very damaged uh, people who, in a sense, the idea is that like gay men relate to them for their pain. And she was like, it, you said, Madonna has power. And I think that was like a really, that was like the first chat we ever had about why it was Madonna. So that was a, that was a brilliant first Well, she really insight. does buck the trend in terms of those other um, incredible female icons that I listed, you know, Amy Winehouse, to mm. sort of throw another one in there, but yeah. I think that's a great um, thing to point to because she really does break the mold. I think that's, she's of a certain generation and, she, and part of what I find fascinating about Madonna, I don't know what your discoveries were as you were doing all this work, um, is that we're very aware of her music and we're into her music, but also there's a story about Madonna. Like we are all, I mean, I don't know everybody, I can say for me, that I'm very connected to like what's happening in Madonna's life and what, what obstacles are in her way and what is she overcoming, right? And that also the fascination of watching her as she's progressed continually reinvent herself which seems like a magic trick when she does it. It's like, oh my God, who is she now? What is she gonna do? She takes us into a new world. And that it all becomes about this idea, which she talks about in her 1994 album, Bedtime Story, Survival. Um, this idea of like, how do we survive, right? And, so, and I feel like those ideas are intertwined in this story. And I wondered like how you were thinking about reinvention and survival throughout. Yeah, so I think the, the, my understanding of those themes, they were, they were present very early on, but I think they've, they've really deepened. And I really, as I said, as I dug into that question of why did I refuse to change my medication? Um, yes, the show is about Madonna. Madonna is a real human being who lives in the world, but she's also this like symbol. Do you know what I mean? She, I, I've often thought she's like a mirror or a projection screen. I know those two things are not the same, but it's like you, you see, you, you project onto her whatever your thing is and, she, and different Madonnas give you back different things. And at that moment in time, those concepts of survival and reinvention, they sound very positive. They sound beautiful. Like I've survived. Oh, I've reinvented myself. But I would say in the context of HIV, they're very complicated ideas that aren't entirely, they're, empowering, but they also might be a trap. I'm saying some controversial things here, but what I mean is like, um, when you're first diagnosed with HIV in this day and age, and there are medications out there, and you have the wonderful NHS where um, medication is freely available to anyone who needs it, which is not the case in the United States and many other countries, we should say, um, you are, you are given these medications and very understandably you're told these medications will help you to live and as you said before, like help you to thrive. And you, at least for me, I had a wonderful um, world of support from my clinic, the Bloomsbury Clinic at Mortimer Market Center and amazing peer support from people who gave us all that. And I, in a way, I was doing very well. And I think I, I sort of internalized this idea that I was doing well and I'd kind of got past within a year or a year and a half of like whatever that trouble was. And that, that, so in that sense, I felt like I'd survived it. I'd survived the worst of it. I was open to my partners. I was open to my family. Like what could be the problem? And so in that sense, um, that idea of survival 
it asks us to kind of buy into this idea of strength and the idea that something is like past and gotten over. And so as we've um, explored more of the play, um, I think I've really been, in, you know, the two charts that appear in the play, I think are also really important because in a way, I understand why people with HIV tell themselves that story because it's like, that was hard and now look, you've come to a place where everything will be okay. And in a sense, that is, it's a very comforting uh, magical thinking but it is maybe not real. And I think that period of time where I was, where I was grappling with um, changing my medication, there was a lot of um, unexpressed and suppressed pain and trauma that was manifesting in ways that like literally no one else in the world knows about. Like, you know, things that were to do with the medication that were probably to do with, um, you know, uh, traumatic emotions and kind of like self-destructive behavior that I was not owning up to and changing the medications and also just grappling with that. Honestly, working on the play has been a process of that. And as we've developed the play for um, four years, uh, like the, the, the rawness of those experiences has been put in the distance. So I'm able to like approach it more from a dramaturgical standpoint. And in that sense, the play has deepened, I think, to also be my chance to talk a bit about narratives of HIV more broadly. So it is both me and it's like a story of, like is how many of us have ever seen a, a, a play or a, anything that's about people taking their medications every day who've lived with HIV for six or seven years. They're never about that. And so, or, or any chronic condition, there's this idea of maintenance that you just got to maintain that. And how do you find, because drama is so much about beginning, middle, end, but that experience is not a beginning, middle, end kind of thing. And that's the tension, I guess, that the play uh, works with. I love that. I mean, I was thinking, um, I was saying to Mark, I've been HIV positive since 1996. And I remember when you showed the chart, I remember very clearly that chart from my doctor as well, and my parents coming with me because they were trying to understand what was happening to me, and me understanding it, trying to understand as well, and my father saying, we're gonna beat this thing. Mm -hmm. And you know, and this is, this is echoed in the play where it's like, well, it's not something you beat, it's something you maintain, which is a really hard concept to hold, you know, and to live with, well, I have this thing in me, it doesn't have any, it's not visible at all, and yet it is in me, mm -hmm. right? How do we live with that? Mm -hmm. Can I ask, because 1996 is the year that the effective combination therapy, so w was that like they were telling you there's this new thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, uh, and when you throw all the medication on the ground, I said this to Mark the other night, and you started to talk about each of them, I was like, oh yeah, I took yeah. that, that caused this to happen to me, this caused this to happen to me. Like it was a very intense experience of seeing. Um, and that those were all things that I never talked to anybody about. Yeah, and and I would say, like obviously I was diagnosed you know, what is that, uh, multiple decades after that, and the men- talk about <laughs> No, I was just saying, but I, what I'm saying- what Yes, I'm, you're younger and more beautiful. I uh, took no, a boyfriend no. I was living with to see die another day in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> I was not 11. So what I'm, what I'm saying about that, Kenny, is that like, obviously the experience, and I, for those who don't, you know, who don't know someone who's on HIV medication, obviously the experience of taking the pills has become much easier and they don't have as many side effects as, as I understand they did at that time. Um, but I think it is very interesting because in a way, um, 
HIV, for, if, if you live with it or you know a lot about it, it is not this straight line experience, both on a personal level and on a historical level. And I think sometimes the way HIV is talked about is like, it began in 1981, and then it was really bad until 1996. And then we got these meds, and nobody really talked about it for a long time. And then, then this thing came along called PrEP. You know, and I think I have had the experience of being someone who's diagnosed in 2012, which was just before PrEP, in this kind of in-betweenness. And that's kind of how I feel, and I want the show to have that in-betweenness, if that makes sense. Like, I feel very connected to people of the past, but I'm not people of the past. When I've been with, you know, I, I'm with partners who are on PrEP, I some, or I meet people on PrEP who it allows them a freedom that I think, had I, had I been four years younger, I might not be living with HIV. And that is, a, I'm happy that everyone has PrEP and I'm happy that fewer people, um, you know, have to live with the virus inside of them. But that also causes a strange sense of isolation sometimes and like a left behindness. And I think that comes from the way we talk about things as this like historical progression. And really the experience of time is like all over the place. And, you know, in many ways, we part of the reason that this show was uh, four years in the making was because of COVID, mm -hmm. right? And how many of us in the experience of COVID thought, oh, this is gonna be over, but it's not over. And it is and it isn't and our warping of time. So in that sense, the, the experience we all had of COVID, I think made me reflect even more on that strange timeline of HIV. Yeah, I think um, going back, you mentioned something earlier about having an awareness of what's going on in Madonna's life when she's making different pieces of work. And it made me think about, the, because we have been making this piece of work over four years, and the past four years does align with COVID. And we did all meet in that sort of year-ish before it happened. And at that time, uh, we had heard history of epidemics and pandemics, but didn't necessarily have lived experience of them. And then for us to suddenly have it hit in the middle of our working changed so much the experience of making this work. And then we had a significant part of our development period, which then was, was a digital iteration of the work, which was the first time we had all left our homes mm -hmm. after the lockdowns and came together for a few weeks and were working with masks and with distancing. And it was so emotional. I remember us all crying and I had had long COVID at that point and the boys were so wonderful. We did rehearsals with me on the floor on a mat because I was too weak to stand in rehearsal. And I am, you know, will be ever grateful for that. But thinking about, you know, survival and strength and how invisibleness manifests in all of our bodies, uh, that is, I think about that time being so important to me uh, and is such an important part of this piece. And there are histories in how we make work and, and the background behind the scenes things that people don't necessarily know are happening. And I think for us in our small, small little community <laughs> of our show, talking about invisible illness and chronic illness and how it has manifested for us in the team has been a big part of that narrative and the importance of supporting each other and 
and talking about it within wider communities and how important it is to share those, those stories and support others is, is a big part of the work. Well, since we have you, Deirdre, um, I, I, we did want to talk about the, the power um, uh, that Madonna continues to yield over the culture. And um, even this week, even this week, she's, she's everyone's that couple on the train. Yeah, we, we were taking the train out here on Wednesday night and there were uh, a couple probably, I don't know, maybe in their 60s. Yeah, early 60s. They were yeah. not retired. They were coming from work. They were coming from work yes. and they were reading the... Di Evening Standard. One of those Standard. trashy magazines you have uh, over here. Madonna was on on the cover, her picture from the Grammys, and um, and they were really going to town talking about what she looked like and what was happening to her and how distasteful it was and why won't she just stop? And we were like, I can't believe this is happening in front of us. And you know, I was like, Mark, go talk to her. Go talk to them right now. And then I went and slapped them, but no, we, no, no. And I got thrown off the and train. We were no, ended, yeah, yeah. That's not true. We just yeah. sat because we wanted to we just wanted to see what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And we were really I, it was it was very upsetting, you know. And and a little sign, a little sign from the heavens that we were, yeah, we're, we were where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, I I, I do think that one of the most um um uh transgressive things that she continues to do is to hold on to her power. And um, since you are the um, only female identified collaborator and, and all of these gorgeous designers and technicians and I've, I've looked and there's nobody else. So it's me like, what and Steph, our producer, our wonderful Steph, producer, Steph. Steph, Steph, yeah, Steph, yeah, yeah. Steph. Yeah. But like, well, I wanted to know like what, what it, what that example means to you and what, having power in a room as the director of a play or a project, how does it help and hinder you in the world today? It, me it means everything. I think that... I, I definitely don't run a room the way I imagine Madonna does. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm looking at the guys laughing and I don't think I do <laughs> but, there's a lot of sweat and hot tamales in the room yeah, yeah. A lot of sweat. But, uh, but I'm endlessly inspired by her and the way she does and, and we had a conversation about this the other day and I think part of it is she is constantly, constantly, constantly coming up with just an endless barrage of criticism. And that's not to suggest for a moment that every woman doesn't, and that every woman who undertakes a leadership position doesn't undertake 10 times as much, because sim quite simply, we do. Um, and that is what happens when you put yourself in that position and that firing line. And it is awful. <laughs> um, but... I think that what is so inspiring about her in particular is the fact that she doesn't stop and that the power in her suggests that she won't and that you can just keep bringing it <laughs> and she'll just keep, and, and that she's not going to protect, she won't, she calls the misogyny out. She, um, and she, 
you know, will make statements like, you know, obviously you want me to be a doormat. Obviously you want me to back down and I'm not going to. And she doesn't do things that many other women don't do. She certainly, you know, if we're talking about the things that were in that that newspaper that she was being made fun of, she's not the only woman in her 60s to have you know, cosmetic surgery. Contouring. You're contouring. contouring. Yes. <laughs> By any stretch. But the way in which we will violently attack her is is significant. And I think I'll speak for myself as a woman in a, in a leadership position. I definitely, and I say this with sadness, I often feel like I have to hold back a percentage of myself in order to do my job safely, in order to function in society, in order to walk down to the tube station and not be attacked. And that is something Madonna speaks to regularly, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate her using her position and privilege to put herself in the firing line and remind everyone of the violence that we all encounter as women um, and to receive it over and over again from a visible position. Uh, And I think that that is one of the ways she uses her power for all of us. Uh, And that inspires me to keep going and to speak a little louder uh, and at the risk of taking the hit because I want my voice to be heard. Can I just add to that to say, I remember when Confessions on the Dance Floor came out and there was a radio debate over whether she was too old to be wearing a leotard. <laughs> Clearly not. And I, can I jump in? Like, the, it's really, I think it's going to be so interesting this year. As we all know, she's going on tour and I think... But what, because I'm still obsessed with time and timelines, right? And she's done what everybody's wanted her to do, right? The thing about Madonna that I, I, I which I truly appreciate from listening to every single episode of your podcast, <laughs> is that she never gives us what she, what we think we want, which is like the old songs, the old hits again, you know, Drowned World Tour, which. You know, I am now the, the age that Madonna was when she went on the Drowned World Tour and she hadn't performed in seven years. And here I am, haven't performed in how many years. I feel inspired by this tour. But she's, she's not giving us the hits. But now, in 2023, with this new one, it's like she's looking back. But as we said, she's 64. Like, what is that going to be? Because Madonna has always told us, I don't think of yesterday and I don't look at the clock. I want a boogie-woogie which is in some sense, in some sense, right, like a strong and powerful, like I'm just moving ahead. But when I connect it back to the HIV, it's like, I'm not going to look back at like those bad times. I'm going to move ahead. Things are good. But that is like a a complicated attitude. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to see when she does look back, when she does revisit this legacy, and when she, because she's not going to die. She's been living on like macrobiotic vegetables for like however long. We're going to talk about she's that gonna on be, Sunday. She's going to be, she's she's gonna be living for decades and we're going to be watching what an aging Madonna is. And it, I think the reason people get so upset is because it projects a mirror to all of us about what, what that means for us as well. Well, and the two words that I always, the the two things she always says when she's defending herself, and they're my favorite things she always says is, I'm going to continue to have fun in my life, 
It's never, she's never dead. She doesn't care. She really doesn't. Mm. And I'm going to stay adventurous. And that's all, that word adventurous is the one that I'm always like, stay adventurous because that, that's, that's the ball game, really, is to staying open and adventurous. I love it. You're throwing it to me now. Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm going to uh, just pivot to one of the parts of the play or one of the elements of the play that I think was really, really interesting um, is how when you decided the play would be a two-character play, and so you had a character that, uh, or many characters that Dan plays, and sort of how this one one actor plays multiple voices in one body, and yet at, at times they're their they're own characters, but then they really are one in a way. And I'm just curious about how you all talked about that in rehearsal, how that worked for you as an actor. Like, yeah, just a little bit about that experience and what that means to you. Uh, Kenny, yeah. guess what star sign I am? <laughs> I'm terrible with astrology. Oh, the I'll, most I'll dreaded, throw, the I'll, most dreaded in the world. I'll throw it to the crowd. Okay. What's Gemini? Gemini. <laughs> Is that bad? Is that I'm bad? a Gemini. Yeah, yeah. I'm meant to shapeshift, right? It's the whole point <laughs> of being a Gemini. Making me a Gemini is a. <laughs> is uh, uh, can someone escort this person out, please? Uh, is uh, my ability to spin on a dime is because of being a Gemini. You have to shapeshift. You have to change based on who you're in front of and what room you're in. So that's the answer. And, <laughs> well, and I've had really bad dynamics with Gemini's throughout my life, as many people in the room are aware. But I think also like, you know, mutating and changing and something that it's like Brian, the character is dealing with this entity that keeps transforming itself. And so reinvention is a appealing thing, but transformation, mutation and ad adaptation is also like a disorienting thing. I would also say as the director, I love a Gemini. <laughs> and and the, there was a point where we looked at the draft of the script and, and, and there's a moment particularly where Dan is just rapid firing through the characters. And that was something that was originally in a previous draft that w where we had done a digital version of the show and that had been something cut in film. And we had said to each other, uh, maybe this needs to be done with lots of film footage. Are we going to do this live? And I thought, let's just push them through it <laughs> and see what happens. And maybe, maybe if it doesn't work, we'll cut it. And it was what I said to them. And I really didn't think we'd do it. But Dan could do it. The simple <laughs> thing was Dan could do it. He could transform. And, and that works with the themes of the play. It works with the reinvention. It works with the constant mutating, changing, and it was beautiful. Best supporting actor, Dan Delamont, for your consideration. <laughs> um, Mark, there, um, we were the other night sitting in the back. Yes, we were. Counting uh, Madonna references. Yes, and like hair colors, we lost count. Yeah, so we asked. Times. We actually asked Brian how many yeah. Madonna references are in the play, or and you came up with the number. Yeah, I came up with the number. It's a it's a hard thing because like obviously she's discussed a lot, but if we're saying references, meaning like quotations or allude, like the kind of thing you'd put a footnote in yeah. the like in the like uh, you know. Arden Shakespeare version of the text, if that means anything to people out there. Um, do you want me to give the answer, or do you want us well, to guess? You, you, wanna, you had a, you had do, a question. Do you want to play a little game and see well, how okay. many they have, have learned? Sure. Or? Anybody want to guess how many 
like Madonna references you think there were in the script? Oh, that no, that's a lot too much. <laughs> it's only sixty-one pages, yeah, it's right? A, it's the an hour and ten minutes. Is Sixty-one, yeah. Yeah. sixty-two pages. Sixty-two pages. Eighty-six. That's a good. That's okay. a good guess. Right. Is this the Price Is Right? Do people? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a very American. You're going to win a refrigerator. Yeah. No, it was on here. The Price, oh, the price is, is Right. right. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. The answer is seventy-seven. So that's more. Yeah. I mean, on average, it's more than one a page. Uh, do they, are there any people in the crowd who sort of consider themselves to be Madonna experts? There must be. There are a few I, here. I see a hand yeah, here. In the there's a hand. Can right. anybody tell me when Jimmy Jimmy off of True Blue appeared in the in the play? This oh. drove us nuts. Yeah, tonight. they still don't know. Okay, I'll leave you. Go, buy another ticket. Come back again. <laughs> there's a reference. Anybody catch a reference to Body of Evidence, her erotic thriller? What was that? What was that? The wax. The wax. Yes. And who was the wax on top of? Willem Dafoe. Very Whoa, good. Yeah, Excellent. Nice. This is a very high-level crowd. Um, very good. So, yeah, it's the kind of thing, I hope it's not off-putting to people who don't know anything about Madonna, but, you know, there's there's levels upon levels. Well, it's like a language. It becomes like a language as you go through it. I mean, the, mm. the, the lyrics just start to, like, go into you. <laughs> well, it's also like, um, you know, when she arrives as, like, the voice of God from the mountain. It's oh, yeah. sort of like you're quoting scripture throughout the Madonna scripture. Yeah. And then she arrives to sort of say, no, you're getting it wrong or yeah. do this. Right? And, yeah. and, and everybody, I, I mean, maybe some people in the room don't know that. That was all, you do understand those were verbatim Madonna quotes. Do people know that? Yeah. yeah. Like, and I think it, it needs to be said, the, the extensive section in there where she talks about HIV is taken from two main sources, her Amphar speech, where she'd actually received, you know, rumors that she herself was HIV positive and she said, I'm not HIV positive, but what if I were? Can you imagine any other celebrity doing that? And then the other- 1991. Yeah. Luke Perry was there. I Luke remember. Perry. And she yeah. was awarded it by the other amazing AIDS icon. Sharon Stone. Uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Okay, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor Kenny. by video. Kenny, Kenny, icon, Sharon Stone. Panicking, panicking. Um, but, and then this, and then this incredible, um, a Jonathan Ross interview, actually, yeah. people know from the time. Go look, Google this if you haven't seen it. But like the, um, yeah, the erotica era interview with Jonathan Ross, she talks about if, if I was living with HIV, I would certainly talk about it and I would try to stay as healthy as long as possible. I mean, it's like in 1990, whatever it is, that is the most forward-thinking, incredibly progressive message that no one else was saying. So it felt really important to put, as you say, that scripture into the the text of the play. Well, and before I came over uh, the, across the pond, I uh, stopped <laughs> and uh, I looked at my, my uh, like, a ver like a prayer record and, and I pulled out my cassette tape and I remember the panel with the facts about AIDS and uh, wearing a condom was the best way. And I'm a lot, I, I'm convinced that, cause I was, I was like 13 and I hadn't lost my virginity yet. And so I, and I went in armed with condoms when I did um, because of that panel on that album that was a number one album around the world and the fact that so many millions and millions of people bought that record because you were buying records then and saw that fact sheet Cha saved lives yeah. over and over and over again and 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 just i want to make sure that this gets mentioned and people know about it um while we're on the topic of like aids ad hiv advocacy um like i'm very conscious in the play that it is a white cis American man's story. 
And it, I think there were times where I debated, like, do I want to bring it? And it's like, no, it, that's the only story I can tell. But um, I've been really touched. There's been a lot of people, even in the first few previews that we've had, people I'm connected to or through the charities we've been working with who've come and said, I'm a straight heterosexual woman and I've never seen anyone talk about the um, negotiations and conversations you have with a partner who's, who's negative. I've never seen anything to do with how you negotiate medications. And um, this play is playing now for two weeks, but we're going to be on again later um, in Camden People's Theater, but significantly uh, a month and a half from now. So we'll be leading some writing workshops um, where I'm going to try to use some of the techniques that we use to create the show so that there can be um, other people can just use creative expression to express what they express themselves, what their um, experience of HIV and meds is, so that when we do the show at Camden People's Theater, that can be represented, we're hoping, through an exhibition or, you know, something that's given out to people the same way that she gave out those liner notes. Because I want everybody, you know, I have a privilege in the gay, in the white gay community. It's easier for me to step forward and talk about my status. But like, I just want to put this out to the world right now. Think of one film or one play that's ever been written about a woman living with HIV as the central protagonist. Can anybody think of one? But, uh, great. Yes, actually, I had this guy. That's amazing. Drew Barrymore, right? Yeah. Okay. Amazing. But like, and and but we need more of them, and we need some from a perspective of somebody from a Black African background, and like, um, I just think there's so much more that we can say about HIV. So it's really important when 50% of the people in the world globally who live with HIV are women, maybe even more than 50%. Why is there not? Thank you, Drew Barrymore. But like, also, there needs to be to be more. Yeah. Why don't we, we have a few more minutes, so I think we have time for at least one or two questions yeah. from you all. We're wondering, are there any questions in the house? Anybody have something they'd like to ask anybody up here? Oh, hi, I've got a question. Um, you've got a T-shirt that says, Italians do it better, Deirdre. And um, Brian, at the start, you talk about Catholicism. I wondered about thinking a lot about Sinead O'Connor as well and her sort of Irish Catholicism and how we're realising she was mostly right about all the things we thought she was being outrageous about, And but that's an Irish Catholicism. Can you speak a bit more about the Italian Catholicism, please? Lord, what a question. And Deirdre, <laughs> you and I are, believe it or not, Irish and Italian. We are. <laughs> and Dan, believe it or not, is Italian as well. Sí, son más italianos. Sí, <laughs> yo. Um, has everybody has everybody seen the new Sinead O'Connor documentary? It's really worth seeing if people haven't seen it. It's incredible. Nothing compares. Um, I don't know. What, Deirdre? What do you think about what is the difference between Italian and uh, Irish Catholicism, or how do they fuse into our understanding of the show? I mean, we're speaking as Italian-Americans, which yeah. I think is a slightly different sort of framework in, in terms of how we relate that to, and, and how we relate that to Madonna. But I do think that, at least in relation to the show, we did talk a lot about our relationship to growing up in the church, um, both of us. And we did talk about priests and, priest and nuns <laughs> and iconography and, and how that relationship to, uh, as Italian-Americans, um, uh, that sense of family 
um, that we both had and, and, and the presence of that uh, and, how, and, and how that also came through in different Madonna music videos. That was definitely part of our conversations. Uh, and, and then that came through in the storylines and we talked about how that potentially related to the different characters in the play. Yeah, and actually now that I think about it, and it's not a joke that there are many priests and nuns in my family, and, and my, my other play, the first play they ever wrote and produced was about a radical left-wing Catholic nun. You, you can find it in uh, charity shops everywhere. Dan recently <laughs> yeah, found a copy found in a charity shop. Um, but my, my aunt, who was like a surrogate mother figure to me, actually, I, I don't say this in the play, but I also lost my mother at a very young age. Um, which is another thing, like like Madonna. So I always cry in that bit in Truth or Dare when she goes to the um, to the cemetery. But um, my aunt was a was a nurse caring for people who were. Um, she was a nun and she was also a nurse caring for people who live with HIV. And I think actually, as I think about it, I haven't thought about that. I haven't articulated this. Italian Catholicism and in its in its art and its rituals is very bodily. Mm. I don't know if that the same could be said of Irishness. Probably thinking of my Italian family and my Irish family, probably not. But And I think so much of the play is about that, for me, is that separation of brain and body. And there's something, you know, when, when we first did the very first version of this, it was Deirdre's idea for me to do all that physical expelling of the tension at the end. And I think it's just like, what what is the body? Like reconnecting the body. And there's an embodiment right, a transubstantiation that is all part of, like, Italian Catholicism. And it's like, yeah, getting getting back into the body out of what's going on in the head and the connection of that. So maybe that's something that's in there? No, I do think it is. And, and I also think we talked a lot about the very last moment before we get to sort of the meta-theater moment with Dan and Brian speaking, you hear the opening chords of Ray of Light and we want to, and Zephyr in the Sky, you just hear the very beginning of it. And we wanted there to be this feeling of hope. Um, and we talked about something that felt potentially religious, that certainly felt hopeful. Um, and that, and for it to be bodily, I wanted you to hear Brian's breath. I wanted you to see him in his body, to see his body up and down and on the ground and so connected his breath into his toes. And for us, that was something um, that was about him connecting with himself fully, potentially connecting with his God, whatever that might be or how we might interpret that, Madonna or not. Um, yeah. In a song about... Um, lifting out of your body. Yes. Ray of Light is such a song about getting out of your, through the spirit. Power. And I, I also want to invoke two names that haven't been mentioned tonight, um, which is our incredible designers. That's Josh Anyo Grigg, who did both the sound and all the projection work. Um, yes. He's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Alex Thomas, who did our amazing lighting design. Like, I, I, Total you know, star. We're here on an Arts Council-funded uh, performance in Clapham, but I really do feel at many moments in the show that I am, like, in the Drowned World Tour, in the Confessions Tour. We've got the flight case there, and I am, you know, giving the thing. And I think, like, they have created a sonic and a sound world that is both a Madonna concert tour and the inside of my head. And, like, especially Josh, the way he's woven including Jimmy Jimmy, 
the uh, the Madonna like looping sounds all the way through the thing. I I think it it it's like essential to the way the show works. Well, I think we should probably wrap up. It's getting late. It's probably time to either to go home or go have drinks. Drinks. Um, oh, okay, drinks. And um, but I wanted to say I was I was trying to find this quote in an interview from Madonna from I don't remember I can't find it. But I remember her somebody asking her like what does she think of her fans or what's her relationship or what does she hope for from her fans right? And she said, well, I hope that they're good people and that they learn lessons from me that are about goodness and bringing light into the world and that they take their energy and power and do beautiful things with it. And I think tonight and this show and all the work you all have done is a great example of that, that taking of her spirit, of her energy and bringing that back into the world in a really beautiful way. So thank you for all your work. Thank you so both. Thank, thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you all. Uh, Oh, I miss those fellas and that lady. Mm. Yeah, yeah. There are people. Well, we wish they are our people. We love them. And uh, I'm so glad we got to hang out with them and have that conversation. And I'm really excited uh, for everybody who's going to get to see the show uh, this April. Uh, again, April 4th through April 15th, 7 p.m. at Camden's People's Theater. Go to London, take some screenshots of it and send them to us so we know you were there and we'll give you special prizes <laughs> the next time we cross the pond really okay well um you let me know what those special prizes are mark i feel like you have a couple um corrections or mea culpas you need to do so well first well you know you're in the live in the show and you're talking about things and sometimes you get things wrong and i am the first to admit that i'm a terrible uh, name pronunciator for example <laughs> um, but I committed a really the, the the in in this conversation we just had. Uh, I believe we miss uh, misassigned roles in the movie Boys on the Side. Uh -huh. uh, Mary Louise Parker dies of a very slowly too dies of AIDS in that movie. Um, uh, and Drew Barrymore is the um, fun, free spirited one that gets them into trouble. Mm. Um, while Whoopi Goldberg sings, you got it. And um, I also committed a huge faux pas that many, 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 many people <laughs> call this out for. Dancer from the Dance is a novel by Andrew Holleran about yes. Yes. Uh, gay men in Fire Island in the late 70s. It is not the Bjork movie that our God, <laughs> Mark Spikes, Vincent worked on uh, that was nominated for Oscars and all kinds of stuff. So... Um. Um, but however that's well, a dancer of the dance right dancer uh, of the dance dancer i think it's dancer from in the, the dark dancer in the dark <laughs> even if you're dancing, I think it's in, dancer the dark. in the dark um, i'm dancing yeah. in the dark well what's funny I'm waiting about, for that spark <laughs> what's funny about all of this is that um you actually made that mistake twice i don't understand because i feel like we <laughs> recorded it and like you still said it wrong and i missed it and i apologize for missing it but I, I kind of like the idea that Bjork would make a soundtrack for Dancer from the Dance um, as oh a new God. project about, you know, gays in the 70s. That book is a seminal book, though. I don't know. You read that book, of course. Oh, yeah, of course. Several times. Um, I, I keep losing it. 
I keep I keep um, giving it to people to read, or um, someone will be in my apartment and steal it. I mean, oh. I've lost it like three or four times. Yeah, maybe this summer we should read it again and take a trip out to Fire Island and. You know, yeah, I you know where I always find copies of it on Fire Island. It's a very good thing to do is to read it in Fire Island. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long while taking photos of yourself on a boardwalk in a bikini thong. You have that like in your hand. You know, like how Madonna always yeah. walks around with like lots of things in her hands, like little yeah. you know folders. We could have a folder that's like a book, the copy of the book, and notes, and um, and also the annotated. Um, you know, score that Bjork is working on for the musical version. Oh my God, the musical version of Dancer from the Dance. There'd be a lot of songs about swimming. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, till anyway. next time. Bye.